Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. There are two problems that are typically siloed in the era of Me Too and mass incarceration sexual and gender violence on the one hand, and the state's unjust, ineffective, and soul-destroying response to it on the other. Is it possible to confront the culture of abuse? Is it possible to hold harm doers accountable without recourse to a criminal justice system that redoubles injuries, fails survivors, and retrenches the conditions that made such abuse possible? The Feminist and the Sex Offender by Judith Levine and Erica Miners, published by Verso in 2020, develops an intersectional feminist approach to ending sexual violence. It maps with considerable detail the unjust sex offender regime while highlighting the alternatives we urgently need. Judith Levine is a longtime journalist and the author of countless articles and commentaries in popular media, and the author of five books, including Minors, The Perils of Protecting Children from Sex, which won the LA Times Book Award. Erica Miners is a professor of education and women's and gender studies at Northeastern Illinois University, and the author of several books, most recently, For the Children, Protecting Innocence in Protecting Innocence in a Carceral State. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, Judith, and welcome, Erica. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. And I just just wanted to correct the name of that book is Harmful to Minors, The Perils of Protecting Children from Sex. Oh, thank you so much for that correction. I appreciate it. Um, so to get started, and we'll, we'll start with, um, with Judith, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this particular work? Um, I, am, I have been for a very long time. I shouldn't reveal my age, but I've been a uh, feminist since the beginning of the second wave of American feminism. And at the same time, I've always been an opponent of the carceral system before we called it the carceral system um, and of punitive approaches to any kind of wrongdoing or any kind of um, overstepping of, of community mores, family mores, interpersonal relations. Uh, I don't think we should hit kids and I don't think we should put people in prison. So uh, as a feminist, I care a lot about violence against women and against all sorts of vulnerable people in the world. And also as a prison abolitionist, I care a lot about the violence that the state does to us. Right. And thank you for that. Oh, sorry. Were, were you, did you have more you wanted to share? Yeah, so I'm just going to say, um, so I've been a, both a journalist and an activist in both of these areas. Um, and in particular, came to find out about sec- the sexual uh, sex crimes uh, policy and the sex offender registry through my work uh, talking about children's sexuality and the ways that we try to protect them and instead do harm to them. So I started to work on both of these tracks at the same time. Thank you for that. Um, uh, um, Erica, would you like to, uh, to share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to, to produce this book? 
Thanks. I'm really excited to be here today to be in conversation with you and also with uh, my comrade Judith. Um, you know, I um, am from Canada originally. I'm an educator, an organizer, uh, a longtime feminist as well, I'm similar, similar to Judith. And when I moved to the United States, I um, got I done, I done before that a little bit of organizing related to what gets called the criminal legal system or the carceral state now. But when I moved to Chicago, I got heavily involved in anti-prison organizing um, and came really sort of face to face with people uh, coming out of prisons and jails who were on the registry. Um, and I had to sort of figure out how to reconcile or um, engage my feminist politics with my growing anti-prison abolitionist politics. So, um, you know, for me, um, this project and the opportunity to, to think and write with Judith um, was an opportunity not to necessarily solve that problem, um, but to sort of push together my feminist politics with my abolitionist politics. Because if I'm interested in building a world, you know, uh, with other people um, that is free from policing and punishment and, and prisons, I'm also equally interested in a world free from gender and sexual violence. Um, and for me, the question of registry is what do we do with men who perpetuate gender and sexual violence um, is really a kind of core uh, and, and troubling place. Um, so that's sort of what you know led um, led me to be really interested in doing some prolonged thinking and and writing um, around the around these around this work, but also to you know in, in order to stay connected to feminist organizing and education, and to stay connected to abolitionist organizing and education. All right, great. Thank you for that. So, uh, Judith, here's a, 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 a easy question. Um, why shouldn't all those uh, who are deeply concerned about the well-being of women and putting an end to sexual abuse not celebrate the recent high-profile court convictions against uh, the USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser and the Hollywood uh, power broker Harvey Weinstein? Um, I guess there are two kinds of celebrations. One is the one that feminists should celebrate, and that is the societal reckoning with millennia of gender and sexual violence and the ways that it has been covered up and excused um, and, and, and let go by institutions from the U.S. Olympic Committee to... Hollywood to schools to everywhere else. So that side of it, we should celebrate. The question though about what to do with people and shouldn't, should we be jumping up and down when somebody gets sent to prison for 20, 30, 40 years, 100 years, his whole life? Um, the reason that feminists should not celebrate that and should not support it and should not promote it is that violence by the state and violent institutions, such as prison, only make people more violent. They do violence, they perpetuate violence, they believe in violence, and they act on an ideology that violence, that might makes right. It's exactly the same ideology that allows men and that promotes men to do violence, gender and sexual violence, or anyone to do gender and sexual violence against people who are socially, physically, in any way, uh, more vulnerable than they are. So these are not 
opposing forces, the, the, uh, the punitive state and the uh, person who is uh, doing, doing gender violence. They're on the same team. They're kind of a good cop and a bad cop. And so if we really want to eradicate violence, if we really want to challenge violence, and if we really want, as Erica said, a peaceful world in which everyone can be free, in which everyone can consensually express their own love, sexuality, pleasures, we need to get rid of all kinds of violence and not use one as a solution to another. Right. Um, so, uh, um uh, Erica, you uh, mention in the book, uh, you talk about carceral feminism versus abolitionist feminism. What do those two terms mean and how do they differ? Great. Um, I think that those are sort of new terminology, but they're old stances and practices. Um, so we might have we might have heard those terms, you know, especially people who are organizers or academics. Um in the last couple of years, a lot about both terms, but both those terms have really kind of long genealogies of practices and concepts. By carceral feminists, we mean people who, just following up on Judith's last um, response, feminists who've decided that the way to solve gender and sexual violence is to have, you know, uh, mandatory arrest laws, to try to have stiffer and longer sentences, to try to have more surveillance, more punishment, more policing. Right. Um, so we think about that as a carceral feminist move to sort of turn to the state and say, you know, we, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we, we, we merit your protection. And then the state is going to come along and do, you know, um, you know, longer sentences. But we know, of course, you know, from people who studied responses to gender and sexual violence that, you know, who is most likely to get charged is uh, and who's most likely to get, you know, um, arrested. You know, it's it's not um, it's you know it's men of color, poor people, et cetera, and even queer people getting caught up in that um, dynamic, um, and also most you know most effectively or most importantly, um, that carceral response doesn't actually end gender and sexual violence. It doesn't build movements that stop the reproduction of gender and sexual violence. It doesn't um, you know hold men accountable you know for perpetrating gender and sexual violence. It doesn't change conversations. It doesn't change cultures. It doesn't do that work. So we talk about carceral feminism as sort of these state responses that, you know, really build more harm and actually don't any, don't do anything to solve that original problem of gender and sexual violence. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about abolition feminism or abolition feminists as people who are really trying to build other practices, whether they're um, preventative practices for the long haul you know, Judith and I write about the importance of, you know, funding meaningful and affirming sexual health education as a preventative response to addressing sexual violence, right? Um, but also abolition feminists are invested in, like, what do we do when harm happens? How do we hold people accountable? How do we support people who have experienced that harm? And how can we do that outside of this uh, dynamic of policing and punishment, which we know you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't often work in those kinds of contexts. And just as I I started this by saying that there were long histories to both of those terms, like there's a long history of in particularly white women or white stream feminism, turning to the state and asking the state for protection, you know, and thinking that the, 
that laws and punishment is going to, you know, uh, uh, make their lives safer. And there's also a long history of abolitionist feminist people who could never rely on the state for safety, who couldn't turn to the state and say, protect me, uh, of building, you know, now we call those some of those interventions and initiatives, practices of community accountability, practices of transformative justice, practices of restorative justice, you know, or ways, sometimes messy, but to hold people accountable for perpetrating harm that are that are not relying on systems of policing and punishment. Um, so I think it's important just to remind us of those kind of long histories of both of those movements, um, because even though we have kind of cool n- names for them now, they're not necessarily new practices. Right. And uh, just one follow-up, Erica. Um, when you, you mentioned that the the carceral, meaning prison, uh, systems and these kinds of systems of punishment don't really work. For, for listeners who are not really familiar with this discourse, with this uh, um, uh, discussion and analysis, um, it, it, it might seem on a kind of superficial level that if people commit a crime, like uh, you know, sexually assault someone, and then they get locked up for a long time, uh, both they personally are unable to continue to hurt people sexually uh, because they're they're not in the general public, and uh, it, it might seem to people that locking up offenders for a very long time could have, um, uh, uh, um, you know. Uh, um, uh, effect on the rest of the population would be offenders that they say, oh, well, look, look at what happened to that guy. He got locked away for 30 years. Well, I, I really better make sure not to do that crime. So uh, could you talk a little bit more kind of in detail, uh, more specifically, how do we know that this kind of uh, uh, logic or this kind of uh, um, techniques of locking people up and throwing away the key, how do we know that that doesn't actually uh, prevent uh, future sex sex crimes from happening? Great question. And I'll start, and I bet Judith has more examples and more details, because uh, I think there's a couple of levels to that response. I mean, I think fundamentally the criminal legal system punishment doesn't act as a deterrent, right? We wish it did, right? We wish that, you know, uh, you know, you know, having the death penalty or having, you know, super long sentences, you know, functioned as a deterrent, right? And I think that there's no evidence you know, across the criminal legal system that that's the case. I think the second point that I always like to reiterate is our goal here is to end gender and sexual violence, right? And there's also no evidence that punishing people who perpetrate it holds them accountable for that harm, you know, transforms those behavior practices or, you know, changes the wider cultural and social contexts that have normalized and made that behavior just kind of what, you know, like general, you know, everyday masculinity, right? Like that's a, that's an okay behavior practice, right? So I think I want to start with those kind of two points because I think they're, you know, really important. You know, criminal legal system punishment doesn't act as a deterrent. We wish it did. So many studies show that. And the second point, um, you know, is that our goal here, I think feminist goals aren't simply just to warehouse the problem or to, you know, stuff the problem away in a prison for, you know, just, you know, where all the bad people go, but the bad people, this kind of leads into my third point, are in our families. They're in our mosques, they're in our churches, they're in our, you know, synagogues, right? They're in our uh, sports teams, they're, you know, in our schools. So as if, you know, just locking away all the bad people, you know, uh, is the solution here. We really have to, you know, deeply interrogate what passes as normal, you know, and what passes as, you know, uh, 
kind of okay forms of masculinity, okay forms of femininity that we've organized our society around. And then kind of that leads into the third point is that for many people who experience, and here I'll just kind of highlight, you know, cisgendered women um, who who experience intimate partner violence, you know, it's often from their intimate partner, right? So, you know, uh, mandatory arrest laws, for example, you know, if you are, you know, you're struggling to pay the rent, right? And you're now, you know, you love this person who's harming you. It's a complicated relationship. You know, having this person arrested and sent away might also, might put your economic, you know, your family in jeopardy. Like we don't have the social, you know, structures for that. So many women who experience, you know, gender and sexual violence, you know, what they fundamentally want is that harm to stop and that person to be accountable, right? Uh, you know, they don't necessarily report in studies that they want that person to spend the rest of their life in prison. It's somebody that they love, right? You know, so I think that those kind of complicated sets of relationships, you know, need to be accounted for. So I think that those are just some, you know, kind of preliminary things that we explore in the book. Doesn't act as a deterrent. You know, our goal here as feminists is we don't want to warehouse the problem and, you know, hide it away. We want actually to build you know, and and take the millions of dollars that were billions of dollars that we're using around prisons and imprisoning people to put that into movements that are actually saying this form of behavior, interpersonal violence, gender and sexual violence is completely unacceptable, right? And we need to, you know, shift and uh, build cultural and political movements, which we have, I don't mean to imply that they're not there, that are challenging that. And I think the third thing is people who experience the harm themselves. You know, I think that, you know, I think there's a little bit uneven here. I mean, just like, you know, you started with that opening question about, don't we feel glee, you know, about people like that swim coach, you know, or Harvey Weinstein being arrested. I think that that research also shows that people who have experienced gender and sexual violence is complicated, right? Often they don't want the person arrested. They want to be safe. They want to be economically supported, you know, uh, you know, but, but, but punishment is often, you know, not necessarily the very first thing, but I think Judith, you probably have more things to add here. I feel like I'm in my teaching mode, so I have to like summarize everything. Here's the three points I just made. <laughs> you did great. You did great, Judith. If you want to, you want to add to yeah. that. Well, Erica just gave, I think, a, a really great summary of the cultural and political uh, points. You know that about how we think and care and act upon violence, but. Um, I would add that, you know, criminal, criminological research supports this political and social um, analysis. And that is, there are two things that criminologists look at. Uh, they look at deterrence of crime, prevention of crime, and desistance from crime, that is stopping doing crime. Uh, deterrence, as Eric had said, um, many, much research shows it's a little more nuanced than it just doesn't work. Um, what they find is that certainty of response may deter crime, but length of sentence or severity of, of response does not deter crime. I mean, there are plenty of people who are just sort of, you know, some people are out of control. A lot of sex crimes are crimes of convenience. You know, you're holding up a store. You're going to make the clerk give you a blowjob. You know, so these are not people who have some sort of pathology that makes them keep on doing it. And then there are dysfunctional families. There are families in which there's a teenage girl and a stepfather. And, you know, so all of those kinds of situations. Um, But certainty of response and certainty of response doesn't have to be a penal response. It can be a community response. It can be a family response. 
So that's the first thing. Then, so how do people who have done crime stop doing crime? Um, there's as much less research on this, but I think it's much more interesting research. And that is uh, when people talk about what would stop them, what would make them change their ways. It has to do with relationship. They don't want their mother to hate them. They don't want their children to reject them. They don't want their neighbors to fear them. These are people who they care about. It's not the state. It's not the community even. It's actual people whom they know and love and want the approval of. And so people stop doing things because they know that on the other side, if they begin to act in a different way, they may have better relationships, happier relationships, and just incidentally, they're not going to get locked up. So um, those two sides of it, and, and so when we look, at, for instance, at the sex offender registry, what does the sex offender registry do? It defeats both of these. It doesn't work on the deterrent side, because as Erica said, almost all sexual abuse and sexual harm is done within families. It is intimate violence. It's not like getting nabbed off the street. That's not usually what happens. So it's within a context of a complicated relation, family, familial relationship. It's a, often a bad one or sometimes partly good. Um, and then, um, so as I just saying, um, so the sex offender registry. Does the sex offender registry prevent more crime? No, one of the reasons. So, sorry, if I could. Yeah. It, sorry, if I could just interject for listeners yeah. who are not familiar. What could you what just briefly yeah. describe what the sex offender registry is? The sex offender Thank registry you. is a vast system of federal and uh, state laws and restrictions, regulations, administrative. They can call it administrative, but it's really punitive codes that um, apply to people who have already been um, convicted, sometimes sentenced, sometimes not, of a sexual crime. It can be, in some cases, what used to be a misdemeanor, such as, uh, you know, exhibitionism. Um, but most of the people on the registry are people who have done uh, harm to children. So, uh, so it's a huge network of very, very strict restrictions on where people can live, whom they can be with, when they can be out, what kind of work they can do, uh, whether they can travel, where they can travel, can they get loans, can they join the military, all of the kinds of things that keep a person connected to the community are cut off by this huge web of consequences, what they call collateral consequences of criminal convictions. Everyone with a felony conviction has a huge web of collateral consequences that make it very hard for them to re-enter normal life, community life. Sex offenders have that times a million. So that's what the sex offender, and literally the sex offender registry is a public list. You can go online and put a person's name in it, tells you what their offense was, tells them when it happened, who their victim was, where they live, and in some cases exactly where they live. So what does the sex offender registry do? It makes it impossible to reform and solidify and, and reward those kinds of relationships that help people to desist from more crime. You have to tell someone you go on a date with that you are a sexual predator, that you have a sex crime. So you can't get to know that person before you can 
confide in them that this is something that you've done. It doesn't let you go to a bar, even if you're not an alcoholic and you're bar- and it doesn't let you uh, coach the little league team, even if your crime had nothing to do with children. It doesn't let you in many, many churches and synagogues won't let people come in and worship. And so they can't make that connection either. And so it cuts off all of the social glue that helps people to live good lives. And we also know that people who have that kind of social glue can do live good lives. They don't go out and do violence ordinarily. So the sex offender, so all of the kinds of systems that we have both interrupt both of these things that criminologists care about and that we care about, how to prevent crime and how to stop people from doing it again. Right. And um, uh, let's see. <laughs> Uh, Erica, um, if you uh, could help us understand a little bit, um, what is the Violence Against Women Act and what are some of its negative consequences? Okay, I'm going to do my best with this, but I might, um, again, I might have to turn to Judith here to remember the details. I I know that it just just got reauthorized. Um, Judith has got it open here. I mean, I think it, uh, maybe I'll give the sort of philosophical context and Judith can do some of the specifics and she's whipping open the book right now as we speak, which is a lovely orange for, for mm-hmm. listeners. Um, it's just a lovely orange color. Absolutely. <laughs> just, you know, just trying to um, sell, sell the product. It's beautiful. It's useful. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's it, uh, often, you know, those of us who are abolition feminists are interested in um, building uh, meaningful movements to end gender and sexual violence that don't augment or expand mass incarceration. You know, often we as abolition feminists uh, kind of point to the Violence Against Women Act as sort of a, you know, as a, as a key example of carceral feminism as the kind of feminism that uh, has turned to the state. And I've been wondering if we actually want to, you know, try to with disaggregate feminism from that lately. Like, why are we giving up feminism, right, and, and allowing folks to use feminism in that, um, in that, in the service of punishment and policing? But you know, uh, the Violence Against Women Act, which was part of the Clinton administration, sort of omnibus, you know, enormous, you know, crime act that was passed in '94, which did all kinds of things. For example, like remove uh, Pell Grants, you know, from, from people in prison, you know, which, you know, gave, uh, you know, enormous budgets to policing expansion, for example. It also included the Violence Against Women Act, which sort of codified that, you know, uh, the state's response to, you know, gender and sexual violence as, you know, policing and punishment and, you know, implemented things like um, mandatory arrests, right? So the police you know, would come, would be called, would come to a, you know, domestic disturbance. And even if the, uh, uh, you know, even, you know, and would make, would mandate arrest. So what often women report is that if they're arriving, you know, in the middle of a dispute that often, you know, the, you know, and it's a heterosexual couple that both the, the woman and the, uh, and the, you know, and the male partner, you know, would be arrested, right? Because of these sort of mandated report laws, Right. Or even if the woman didn't want, you know, the perpetrator to be arrested, the police still had to arrest. So it had it had components like mandating arrest. Um, you know, I think it had the sentence lengthening. Right? Um, we just reauthorized it. You know, sort of Biden, you know, was very much you know, kind of championing the reauthor- reauthorization of it. Um, 
But Judith, since you have the page open in our book, can I, uh, yeah. is there, are there components uh, that you want to flag yeah. there? Yes, it was first passed in 1994, part of the, as you said, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. And it's been reauthorized twice, I think. Um, yeah. In addition to the things, one of the things that it did was it required the states to establish sex offender registries. So that was a big part. Um, it created 60 new death penalty um, offenses. Um, it, um, and it just poured billions of dollars into police expansion and prison construction. Um, so what we say is that um, while the crime bill expanded and deepened the prison nation, VAWA, as we call it, married anti-violence feminists to the violent state. And the reason that we say that is the the Violence Against Women Act was considered a kind of landmark achievement of the feminist anti-violence movement that had begun in the 1970s. Um, at that point, there were, you know, it was even harder to convict a rapist than it is today. Their domestic violence was just considered a fight between, you know, partners, a spat. It was not considered like a serious assault. Uh, you could rape your wife. It was legal to rape your wife. Uh, there was no spousal rape law. And so um, in trying, and furthermore, women who were uh, the victims of sexual harm really had no place to go. They didn't want to go to the police. The police just laughed at them or abused them some more, which they still do. And so a network of shelters and uh, political Consciousness raising and political action and activist and, and advocacy groups began to form a network among among feminists. And so what I think I felt this too at the time, what we felt was if the state is going to really take seriously that the state as a spokesperson for us, the community, if we are all going to take sexual violence seriously, then the state should do something about it. And what does the state do about it? The state should, you know, punish people. That's what it looked like would be a good thing to do. Subsequently, as Erica spoke about before, it turned out that VAWA protected some kinds of victims, white, middle-class, heterosexual, married, educated, um, you know, parents with two-parent families and so on. It didn't protect uh, single parents, uh, lesbians, you know, women of color, people with drug addiction, sex workers, all of those people who are also considered somewhat criminal to begin with. Um, and so some of these things have gotten a little better in the subsequent reauthorization. Some of them have gotten worse. The set sentences have gotten longer. The crimes have gotten more. The offenses have gotten more. Um, so many people actually who, or some people who at first uh, uh, advocated for VAWA, have now turned around and said, it was a mistake. Shouldn't have done it. Uh, we need to get rid of it. Uh, it's not helping. It's not working. It certainly doesn't work in domestic violence. A lot of DV people have really turned around and said, we have to have a different way to deal with this. So at the, other, the last thing to say is that at the very same time as the Clinton administration pressed for and the Congress passed this huge uh, omnibus crime bill, they were also dismantling welfare as we know it. They were taking money away from family supports, away from food programs, away from education, away from welfare in general, away from helping 
poor people take care of their children well and putting it into punishment. And so it was making all of those structural supports for families, for loving families, for children, and putting them into punishing bad adults. And that direction has been going, you know, since then. And it is an abolition feminism says, let's turn it around. That's what defund the police means. Take it out of there, put it back into families, put it back to education, put it to communities, to parks, to food, to all of to the environment, all of the things that really make people safe, that really make people happy, that really help people to flourish. Right. So uh, just a follow up, uh, Judith, Erica sort of mentioned this before, but if you could just highlight it again for people who are not familiar with all of this discourse, they may not see the obvious or the, the, the profound connection between the welfare state and the government providing financial support for struggling families. You know, what exactly is the connection between that and protecting citizens from sexual harm? Could you just kind of clarify exactly you know, how those two things are so directly related? Well, one of the things that Erica and I stress in the book is that sexual harm, as awful as it is, is not a separate category of harm. People do all kinds of violence to one another. And to cordon off sex as the worst and different, as we do in the system, uh, is to um, neglect all of the other kinds of harm that happen to people, including the kinds of harm that the state does, and including the kinds of harm that happen generally to people within societies that do not support people first, that care more about money, that care more about corporations and all the rest of it than they do about people. In general... Societies, welfare states that have good childcare, good education, supports for working families, uh, uh, decent wages, um, socialized medicine, uh, mental health care, dental, all of those kinds of things, housing, all of those kinds of things. Those societies have less crime. They just do all over the world and fewer guns. That's the other thing. And so there is a direct relationship between poverty and violence to children. Poverty is itself violence to children, and it's not because poor people are bad or more violent than anybody else. It is that they live with continual stressors. They can be homeless. They can be living tons of people in the same apartment. Um, the kid, they don't have as good education. They don't. They may have their children younger because they don't. They're, they, they're not, they don't have access to contraception and prenatal care, um, and so all of those things contribute. Poverty contributes to sexual harm and harm harms against children, and the welfare state and in general support for um, the public good is a way of suppressing and diminishing crime. There is much less crime in those, those kinds of situations. So to help families, to make life better for people is, a direct, is directly related with a decrease in crime. All kinds of crime, not just violent right. crime, uh, um, also economic crime. Right. Uh, so Erica, uh, towards the end of your book, um, uh, to really um, extremely helpful, you focus on concrete ways to improve the the situation in terms of uh, preventing and and dealing with sexual harm 
in our society. And one of the the, the first things that you mentioned is the, to demedicalize sexual violence. What is what does it mean uh, um, to demedicalize sexual violence, and how does that help prevent uh, sexual harm? Yeah, one of the um, one of the pieces that we move into in our book project is looking at civil commitment, um, which is you know the United States has, and I think twenty states we have uh, legislation that. Um, that once somebody has served their prison term, right, for um, sexual assault, for uh, any kind of sexual harm, um, they um, can be civilly committed, um, which means they can be moved, you know, from their prison, you know, to a hospital. Well, it's ostensibly called a hospital, but it is a form, you know, a, a sort of another prison um, and held there essentially indefinitely. And it's really the medical system, right? Uh, the um, medical industrial complex or the therapeutic industrial complex, to use a, maybe a trendy frame, um, that makes that, um, that sort of legitimizes, that colludes with the criminal legal system, right? To keep people um, in detention indefinitely and, you know, uh, uh, under the language of um, they're going to get care, they're going to get um, therapeutic you know, responses. And of course, neither Judith nor I are against care or therapy, <laughs> you know, uh, very important. But what passes in these uh, for care and therapy in these um, hospitals, you know, is really, you know, uh, you know, coercion and punishment, right? Um, and, and people, for example, in the state of Minnesota, you know, have never been, um, you know, uh, uh, have never been released from these programs, right? So we you know, we have, I think it's 6,000 people kind of nationally that are being held in these civil commitment facilities, you know, because of their um, history of uh, being convicted for sexual harm. So I think one of the, uh, you know, and it does, again, coming back to, you know, kind of the points that we've already reiterated, there's no evidence that states that have civil commitment or sexually violent persons, sexually violent predator laws, you know, have lower rates of sexual harm, right? Um you know, that, that they don't act as a deterrent, right, towards sexual harm. Um, but they also kind of have this uh, function of this sort of creep of having our, our medical, you know, our therapeutic system, you know, um, kind of collude in the incarceration of these communities. And, you know, really, you know, many of the people who are held in these facilities have committed serious sexual harm, right? But the strategy of using our medical you know, system, you know, uh, psych psychologists, right, um, to sort of keep people incarcerated doesn't help us, again, coming back to some of the central points we've made today, doesn't help us figure out why they perpetrated that harm, how to hold them accountable, you know, what, in what ways, you know, we need to transform our, you know, communities and societies so these forms of harm are unimaginable, right? Um, and it really kind of creates a I mean, again, another old story in the United States using our medical system, you know, as a as a way to kind of um, cloak or mask what are deeply ideological and political practices. Right. So I think one of the things one of the points that we you know make in the end of the book, because we are trying to, you know, you know, not just have the critique, but also like here are some things that we can be working on. One of them is you know, we need to essentially, um, you know, I mean, uh, get rid of civil commitment and we, 
The American Psychiatric Association came out against it, right? But the American Psychological Association and the sort of large industry of, um, of therapy and psychology hasn't, um, you know, uh, hasn't, crit- hasn't critiqued this, that we need, you know, we need to just dismantle the system. And um, so that's one um, kind of one facet of the ways in which the medical, you know, or the care uh, um, industry has really colluded with um, the carceral state, uh, prison nation, the criminal legal system to, to really punish people indefinitely. Um, and we, you know, we need to pull those apart. People might need care. They might need therapy, right? Uh, people who have committed sexual harm and people who haven't, but not in these kinds of conditions. And I, I mean, just, you know, they still use the penal plasmograph. They use lie detectors in these, you know, uh, in these, in these, in these institute, I, I feel like facilities and institutions sometimes is such a weak term. Um, Judith, I can see you yeah. raising your hand. Yeah, well, I, so I can't yeah. tell if you're. <laughs> I would just add that this is the medicalization of sex, sexual offending is broader even than these institutions called civil commitment. Um, the yes, whole yes. way that we think about sexual offending and the whole justification for the sex offender registry and all of the restrictions is that sex offending itself is a pathology the only symptoms of which are that you have committed a sexual offense. So it's completely tautological. They also look at the sexual predator as a kind of person, a person who has an incurable personality defect, which predisposes him, usually him, to commit sexual crimes. This is incurable. Therefore, because it's incurable, we can treat people forever and they'll never, and they do make people get treated forever, and they really never get better. And that's why we have to keep them away from everyone. We have to quarantine them from the rest of society, really, for, for good. They're lepers. And that's what the sex offender registry does it turns people into lepers. There is no evidence that people who commit sex crimes are really any different from anyone else. There is no psychological profile of the sex offender, this tautological diagnosis. Um, There are a few people, yes, who do have a violent pathology. They're very, very few and far between, thankfully. So the medicalization, and then it creates, as Eric was saying, an enormous, enormous industry of what they call sex offender treatment. You don't have to be really very well qualified to do it. All kinds of people do it. And so there's a huge amount of money to be made. In, a, in addition to, to civil commitment, there are many, many addictionology and cure places and retreats and, and groups and, you know, and everything. So a lot of people have a lot of vested interest in it, which is one of the reasons that the APA has not come out against it. Right. Um, I, I hear you. Um, so... Uh, Judith, if you could uh, uh, tell us another one of the, the the points that you make in terms of how to deal with this problem is to decriminalize child and teen sexuality. What do you mean by that, and how how does that fit into to what we're talking about? Um, in this country, as well as most countries, we have an age of consent. That is the age at which a person is considered a legal adult, and therefore is legally allowed to have sex with somebody else. If the person is under the age of consent, and in the U.S. in many places it's 17 or 18, which is older than many kids start to have sexual 
relationships, uh, consensual sexual relationships. So that what we do is any youngster, any minor, legal minor who has consensual sex is open to being thrown in prison or thrown in juvenile detention for a consensual relationship. What happens is that there's a relationship and one of the parents finds out and doesn't like it. Often the kids are queer um, or they don't like the boyfriend or they don't like the girlfriend or they don't like this gender identity of the child. Um, and then a whole you know, me- you know, mechanism can begin in which that child's perfectly normal, consensual sexuality is turned into a crime, becomes a crime. And so if you, have a st- if you have a statutory age of sexual consent at 17 or 18, you are criminalizing everybody who wants to have any kind of sexual, and this, and this includes little kids who are playing, you know, playing doctor, or little kids who aggress on each other by poking their fingers where they shouldn't be poking their fingers. That is bad. It's mischief. It should be, you know, addressed. But we want, don't want to set, put those kids, A, in therapy. That's one thing they do. Or put them in some kind of jail. So uh, we criminalize the, the, just the very fact of being sexual is potentially criminalized among uh, children and adolescents. And if I can just add, I feel like because, you know, in talking about this project, I think this is the one kind of of the solutions that gets people seem to get a little like, you know, what are you talking about here? And I think. You know, it's not that harm doesn't happen, you know, between young people, across young people, you know, and it's not that maybe, you know, we're not saying that it's a great thing that like the 11 year old and the 13 year old are having, you know, sex. But we're saying the criminal legal system is not a helpful determiner of what harm has happened, if any. Right. And what should be done in response. Like we don't. May, you know, it, it very well might be the case that that, you know, that that 11 and that 13 year old, you know, or that 11 and that 17 or 20 year old, you know, that's not, you know, that that is harmful behavior. But, you know, the criminal legal system, which I think has been I think the defund movement has really, I think, illustrated, I think, beautifully that we have sort of defaulted, turned to the criminal legal system to be the frontline mental health service provider, to be, you know, to be you know, trying to deal with, you know, kind of like noise complaints on the block to be the, you know, the traffic enforcer, right? Like we need people with weapons on my university campus. Like they are the, you know, we have no mental health services essentially, but we have a $2 million budget for policing and we have, you know, 32 police. So I think, I think, you know, just following up on that point, but um, trying to think about trying to sort of say harm happens, you know, sort of disaggregating crime and harm that, but the criminal legal system harm may happen, may not happen, but certainly our criminal legal system isn't going to be an effective tool, you know, to try to, you know, uh, to try to address that harm, right? If it has happened, or even to adjudicate whether harm has happened. Um, and in fact, that right. leads to our next, our next uh, recommendation, which is how do we deal with, you know, with consent, and that is invest in radical and free sex education. That is not just to teach kids what's bad and what they shouldn't do, but to let them explore, help them explore what pleasure might be. And knowing more about pleasure 
might ha- and how do you have relationships of consent? How do you negotiate things? How do you talk about things? How do you say no in a nice way, not to hurt the other person? How do you ask yes? You know, how do you do those kinds of things? What what are ways of having pleasure that don't involve getting, you know, getting a sexual transmitted disease or getting pregnant or, you know, or doing something that the other person is not ready for? You know, how do so Pleasure education is just as important as consent education. It's most of sex education now is saying no in one way or another. Um, and so the more people know about sex, the more pleasure they have, the more satisfied they are. And also for kids, it allows them to move in a, you know, a slow, reasonable way into their sexuality without having to force themselves, without feeling forced, without not knowing what they're doing. Of course, they're not going to know what they're doing. It's trial and error, but uh, at least they're not going to do it. (laughs) That's how you learn about sex is by doing it and making mistakes and it feels good, doesn't feel good. So, but all of those things, not to do it in a harmful way. So that's the antidote. That's the side that, you know, the antidote to the criminalization, to the punishment of sexual harm. I love that we've just sort of moved over your questions. I feel <laughs> no, no, no. This is all good. This is all good. I, 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 I'm so glad that Judith brought up the issue of the sex education, and I, I wanted to ask specifically. You mentioned in the book the idea of uh, uh, not just teaching skills in quotes, but also an ethic of mutuality. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by an ethic of mutuality? I think I'm just remembering that I maybe balked at the word ethic there. And I was trying to get, I was like, you know, where, I, I'm not, you know, what is that? It, sounds, it sounds kind of floofy, right? Um, you know, ethic. And I think that, um, I think Judith hung on for the, for the word ethics. So, you know, she'll pick up after I start here, but I think we're, you know, the, you know, we, first of all, the United States has like, you know, largely an abstinence based, you know, sexual health education model in my city. It's like amazing groups like the Chicago Women's Health Collective that are like, you know, contracted out to specific schools to do, you know, uh, you know, kind of random, but really important um, sexual health education that's affirming, that's feminist, that's queer, that's not, you know, so I think that there's you know, it's sort of a patchwork quilt across the United States about what kind of sexual health education. And when you look at the curriculum of places like the Chicago Women's Health Collective, it's about communication skills, as Judith was just flagging. It's about, you know, biology, right? It's about pleasure. You know, it's about a whole host of kind, like a, a whole kind of universe. It's not just about the sexual act, but it's about, you know, kind of like a whole host of kinds of you know, um, behaviors and practices. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I have much love for kind of networks like the Chicago Women's Health Collective that are doing this work in kind of, a, you know, often, you know, you know, a school, a public school system that's trying to silo them off and say, like, you get this little bit of time to do this little kind of education. And what they're really trying to do is kind of, you know, be much more, you know, expansive and have this whole kind of, you know, kind of framework that of course it's about, you know, you know, body parts and sex and all that kind of stuff, but it's also about communication. It's about, you know, your, yourself, you know, pleasure, conflict. And um, so, yeah. Um, so that's what I'll, I'll, I'll kind of lead with there in terms of the, 
the um, ethics uh, uh, point. <laughs> but keep on going, Judo. <laughs> oh, I'll say what a sexual. I, I got this term from the psychologist and Ed, Sharon, Ed Sharon Lamb, who was a great yeah. uh, proponent of pleasure and also a great feminist uh, and teaches at the University of Massachusetts in Boston and is also a psychologist in, in private practice. So I, this is how we define it in the book. I'll just read it to you. A sexual ethic of mutuality is a balance of self-protection and altruism. It means bringing your most thoughtful, attentive, and generous self to sex, whether it's casual or committed. Such an ethic is also political. It represents a resistance to the every person for themselves doctrine of neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is the sort of economic system that says the market will take care of everything. And if you're, if you, if you're floundering, if you're failing, it's your own fault. Um, it is intrinsically feminist concept at the heart of building a world in which communities look out for the vulnerable and all persons are valued for who they are. So that mutuality is something that uh, community is mutuality. It's that I help you, you help me. Uh, we are in this together. We're not going to succeed. We're not going to flourish if we don't take care of one another. And sex is one of those areas in which we can do that to the mutual benefit of all. Right. Uh, well, that 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 really does sound so beautiful, and uh, oh, it, it's it's you know uh, right. Well, exactly. I'm thinking like you know this is such a high and 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 wonderful um, goal to set, and it's almost uh, you know you could you could uh, get emotional just thinking what would a, our society look like if that was at the you know the heart of sexual practice uh, for all people, and you know even starting for you know young uh, people in, in high school or what have you, like uh, you know inevitably this the these types of this ethic and these types of practices would spill over into all sorts of other parts of daily life. Um, and as you said, it's in, in, it's very consciously uh, feminist and against, um, you know, the market the thinking of, of capitalism. You could already imagine that this type of ethic would change how people interact with each other at work, uh, at, at, you know, in school and families and, all sorts of ways because uh, it, it puts people and their feelings and and uh, a respect for them at at the heart of of this practice. So that's really quite quite a wonderful uh, um, uh, uh, goal to set. We're going to run out. Okay, I just want to interrupt and say Please. that it's not that this would spill into all of those other things. It is this is a piece of all of that other stuff. It's the same thing as share your toys in kindergarten. And, you know, we're talking about this in the context of there being a, of a violent world and violent sex. So I'm, I want to end with what my parents, Jewish communists, I, I always thought that their ethic or their slogan would be, we're going to make a perfect world, God willing, we should live so long. And that's what we're going to do around sex and around violence. Um, it won't just spill over. This, we hope, is part of a whole network of how we care about each other how society cares about each other, how the state behaves toward us and how we live in community. Yeah, well, just, sorry, I, I'm going to uh, go to you, Eric, uh, in one second. I just want to uh, um, add to, to what Judith was saying that I think this just shows how radical what your book is describing really is. That, again, a cynic 
uh, are someone who doesn't read the book might say, oh, it sounds like these guys are trying to, quote unquote, let you know, criminals off the hook, you know, uh, instead of locking them up, they're saying, no, you know, let, let them go free or whatever, you know, but that actually what you're describing is so much more, um, uh, um, uh, profound and, 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 um, uh, and uh, at least potentially, uh, could transform our society in such a, uh, a more, uh, um, progressive and positive way than just saying, Hey, here's a bunch of bad people. Let's lock them up. Uh, you could see if this ethic, if people really take this seriously, um, as you say, it doesn't spill over, it transforms, um, uh, all other parts of, of the society. Erica. Oh, I know. I, I don't want to stop you from asking the last questions, but I, I want to just, how I've been talking about this book over the last year or so, and even while we were working on it is, you know, if you're really invested in ending gender and sexual violence, this is the pathway, right? And I think most, you know, most people are, right? And I think that trying to get, you know, trying to, trying to start with that, not like, you know, starting with like letting all the bad people go. Cause I, I think that's where people go to, but rather I think the book is really grounded in a commitment to wanting to build sustainable long haul movements that are, and support those that are working to end gender and sexual violence. And I do just want to also echo the earlier point that you just made about, um, you know, about like this kind of the, the radical goals for the book. And I think what's also important to note is that, you know, I was just looking through here because we sort of have a great quote somewhere about, you know, the, the importance of you, know, you got to have the vision of where you want to be. Otherwise, you know, you're just kind of meandering. So I think, you know, it's important to have a radical vision to name what we want and to be working towards that. Right. Let's not say that all we want is the bad people to be locked up. We want gender and sexual violence to be eradicated. So then what do we got to do, you know, to be able to kind of align our practices, our communities to work towards that? I think what's also exciting is the book is full of examples of people who are have been who have been doing this work and who are doing this work right now. So I think one of the things that gets you know sort of lo- you know lobbed at you know whether it's defund the police or whether it's you know um, you know abolitionists or abolition feminists is that's impractical that's you know that's utopian. And I think what the book and you know all of our experiences and the movements I know listeners have been following over the last year in particular, but even longer is that people are building, you know, and have been, you know, resp- you know, ways to, you know, support each other, to hold people accountable, you know, uh, and I think that, you know, the defund, the defund police moment right now that, you know, some say is over, but I actually think it's a really important moment to be paying attention to some of the wins, to the divestment, you know, from taking resources from the policing budget towards, you know, affirming services. And I think, I think that, I think it's really exciting. So the book is full of these examples of people who are trying practices, who are doing things, who are making, you know, who are actively engaged in the kind of uh, pathway towards ending gender and sexual violence that doesn't just reproduce and expand the carceral or punishing state. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's so many more questions to ask, and uh, people should certainly go and read the book and uh, get the full picture. Um, I just want to highlight one thing that Erica was just saying, that um, I, I, I could certainly imagine some people who hear about this and they say, oh, uh, you know, this sounds uh, very pie in the sky or what have you. But the irony is that really no one who promotes uh, the police 
um, you know, and, and prison system as a response to sexual crime actually believes that that's going to end se- gender and sexual violence. Like, no one really thinks that. At best, they'll say, well, you know, we hope to, to manage the situation, to, you know, to, to, to keep it at a quote-unquote reasonable rate, and we don't have, you know, huge explosions of violence or whatever. But the, the, the irony is that what you're describing, you're actually talking about a, a system and a new ways of thinking and practice uh, that could potentially achieve this goal that, as you say, everyone in principle, you know, is, is in favor of. So uh, it really has a tremendous amount to, to recommend it. Um, we're going to have to leave it here. I want to thank um, uh, you both so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was just a joy. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.